Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. So let's start off with some good news. A small trial recently on rectal cancer, and 18 people, so it's a small trial, had spectacular results. Uh, The cancer disappeared in every single one of them, which is like one of those oh-my-God results. The drug is called Dostarlimab. It's an immune checkpoint inhibitor. We've uh, talked about that. Uh, These drugs stimulate the immune system. They're pretty amazing drugs. They usually give about one in five patients some sort of adverse reaction, some Sometimes it's quite severe. Last week's program, we spent a lot of time talking about these drugs and also the evidence that they interact with the microbiome and how maybe even in non-responders to this type of drug, the microbiome transplant can effectively lower side effects, make the person able to tolerate the drug, and maybe amplify, certainly looks like, according to the the evidence I presented, amplify the effect of the drug. This study with this drug, however, had another big surprise. The patients suffered no major side effects and required no further treatment. Now, this was a small study, and they really had to fight to even get funding. I don't think that will be a problem. It was also risky. The subjects all had tumors that were treatable with standard therapies. And if this trial had failed, It's possible that those patients' cancer would have progressed uh, so far that they would have needed extensive surgery. So a real win-win high-five moment for the team there at Sloan Kettering uh, Memorial Cancer Center. Uh, Actually, it's Memorial Sloan Kettering, excuse me. And more than good news, a new treatment for most breast cancer could also possibly be used for other drugs. This one's also um, a... Monoclonal. It's called trastuzumab, direxitan. Uh, it's known by its easily to pronounce brand named Inhertu. It's been used against several cancers. It's an antibody plus drug conjugate, so it's a little bit different than the immune checkpoint uh, inhibitors. It's basically an address label. The antibody acts like an address label and brings the drug directly to cells containing a particular protein called HER2, H-E-R-2. This is the target of another drug, uh, the Herceptin, which has been a real game changer. It uh, has been thought that uh, this drug in HER2 could only be used against people who have the HER2 new type breast cancer, but this study used it on 557 patients with metastatic breast cancers that had low or no levels of the protein. And this was, these were people with advanced cancers, and the ones who received the drug lived uh, six months later than those who received conventional chemotherapy. That's very suggestive that it might work against more than breast cancer, possibly gastric cancers of various types like stomach and duodenum, colon cancers, um, lung cancers. It has to be 
now that we have proof of concept, it has to be tried against all of those other cancers. So, wow. Yeah, pretty amazing stuff. And another really amazing thing happened in the last week, which was that the Inflation Reduction Act passed. And my friends, the biggest thing about this Inflation Control Act is the benefits for Medicare. Now, I remember back under George Bush, I believe it was George Bush the first, Papa George, that in the middle of the night, I believe it was at 1 a.m., the bare little Republican majority that was left uh, fighting it out there in the trenches on the Senate floor passed uh, the Medicare Part D law. And if you were to page back to the old Ask Dr. Don show, yes, I was doing the show way back then, you would find me ranting and railing against the implications of this. It was like, oh, great, we're going to deliver a Medicare drug benefit. Isn't that wonderful? Except that the poison pill embedded in that Medicare drug benefit was the fact that Medicare was prohibited by law from ever negotiating or bargaining with the pharmaceutical companies to bring down the price of a drug. Now, every other country that has national health, most of them, uh, in fact, I think South Africa is the only industrialized nation that doesn't have some kind of national health. Every other country bargains, plays a hardball, major hardball. I mean, you've got 40, 50 million people, let's talk, to, let's talk to the pharmacies, let's talk to Pfizer, let's talk to all of these big companies and say, your suite of drugs, we'll be happy to uh, make them available to our 50 million customers, but by the way, you're going to have to give us a deal on the price, kind of a group discount. Medicare couldn't do that, and we are, of course the lovely beneficiary of that in terms of all the money that all the people on Medicare have had to spend off of their fixed incomes to pay for their drugs. And the drugs have gotten very expensive, as you know. So really, the first inflation limitation benefit will be in allowing these expensive new cancer drugs to be available to seniors, thus deflating the size of their tumors. So... We can expect that to happen pretty quickly, as in 2023, which is looking closer and closer every day, isn't it? Under Medicare's current benefit, most beneficiaries are responsible for unlimited out-of-pocket uh, out spending for drugs filled under their Medicare uh, pharmacy benefit. They have really an unlimited price because the cost of these drugs is so high. It's not unusual for these drugs that we've just been talking about, which I am touting as real miracles. They are amazing and they are astonishing in what they're capable of, but they are also like, oh, we'll give you an infusion every month and it's $15,000 for that infusion. You can run through your entire food budget pretty quickly trying to get these drugs. So for example, I mentioned uh, HER2 new uh, cancer. So for a woman with a HER2 new negative breast cancer, hormone receptor positive, 
The first-line therapy is two drugs, an aromatase inhibitor and a drug called a CDK inhibitor. Uh, the CDK inhibitor, the one most commonly used, is called palbosidib. It costs uh, $3,100 out-of-pocket for the first fill, and it'll run about $10,000 a year for any Medicare Part D beneficiary who isn't low income. And uh, we're talking about a very low threshold for low income. In fact, most people who could afford to pay for rent in California probably don't qualify as low income. Take a patient who is uh, given a different group of drugs. These drugs are given by the physician. They're given as IV, right? This is a HER2 positive patient. Her combination of drugs for her cancer are given intravenously. Because these are given in a doctor's office, they are covered under Medicare in contradistinction to oral drugs, which go under Part D. She would be probably subject to an out-of-pocket spending limit from her secondary Medicare and could be covered with maybe even no-cost sharing. So this is crazy. I think we can all agree. And it's up to the physician uh, looking at the cancer type, looking at the research, it's an arbitrary decision, really, like flip a coin, does my cancer qualify for full treatment under Medicare because it's IV, or because it's oral, am I looking at $10,000 a year for life-saving therapy? It's been crazy, and it's going away. So we should all dance a little jig that this ridiculous, absurd, time-consuming craziness is going to go poof in a few months. Uh, And I just want to say another thing about the inflation reduction bill, because it's finally made some progress uh, against climate change, some substantial progress. I just kind of want to take a moment and think back to uh, 2000 and uh, that election. And you know, there's there's kind of that moment. I, I had that moment immediately. I saw that that Al Al Gore's losing to W was going to be a pivotal moment in human history, and it was. Uh, can you imagine Al Gore, the climate guy, if he had actually been president in two thousand? I mean, let's we'll leave nine one one, and we'll leave you know all of the Iraq war, let's leave those aside. Let's just talk about climate change. Uh, Yeah, it would be amazing. We would be 20 years ahead of where we are now. We would have funded the technology. We would have created an electric infrastructure. The very same thing that just narrowly squeaked through Congress through a backroom deal with a conservative Democrat from a coal mining state. Yeah, okay. The reason this is good is because, you know, all those diseases that we're talking about, the tropical diseases and the viruses and all the other things that are sort of cropping up, well, some of the nastiest viruses are heading our way. Things like yellow fever and dengue and, of course, Zika. You know, those are equatorial 
viruses. We maybe you see a few cases in southern Texas and southern Florida, but it's not the comfort zone for the mosquitoes. Well, the mosquitoes are migrating north, and none of these have treatment, and the diseases are nasty and they're spread by arthropods. And once a person is infected in the neighborhood, there are going to be mosquitoes in the neighborhood, and you're going to have transmission. So that's one issue. The canicules or the heat waves, uh, those kill hundreds of people every summer. And Europe just had a real scorcher. I think things have calmed down the last few days, but we're talking about unprecedented number of people dying because they can't take the heat. Oh, and of course, I last night went and saw the fires. Uh, the fire movie, the one about the August Lightning Complex fire that uh, burnt and almost burnt down Boulder Creek entirely. It's a beautiful movie. If you haven't seen it, uh, you should look for it. I don't know if they're going to, I know they're going to have one more showing. It was in the good times last week. That's how I knew about it. But for us local folks who sat through that fire and breathed that smoke, You know those 2.5 micron particles that I'm always talking about, the ones that are in diesel exhaust? Well, the amount of particulates that we all breathed during those fires and potentially could be breathing again every summer have a major deleterious effect on things that don't, not just the lungs, folks. We're talking about increased Alzheimer's. We're talking about increased cancer. We're talking about kidney damage from trying to get rid of the stuff. It is a public health crisis. It has been for 20 years, 23 years, but we haven't been paying attention. Well, we're starting to pay attention and let's pray that we're in time. I'm going to take a moment before we move to our next topic, which is an update on monkeypox and, uh, We will do an email, this one coming from Carl in Gualala, California. All right, have to look that one up. Dear Dr. Don, I'm a longtime regular listener, discovered you years ago as a grad student at UCSC, and I really appreciate your nuanced approach to medical concern. My simple question is, as a healthy 70-year-old on a whole food, plant-based diet, and someone who exercises and meditates regularly, I don't have too many concerns other than the inevitable effects of aging. One of those is a slight stiffening and soreness in the muscles and joint. A friend recently recommended that I try sulfur supplements in the form of MSM, as I recall, as a way to address this. Since I know many foods already contain sulfur, broccoli, for example, all of the crucifers have high levels of sulfur, as do the onion group. Um, That was me being parenthetical, Carl. And Carl doesn't recall me ever recommending sulfur supplements. I was wondering, Carl says, if you had any opinion on them as a way of addressing stiff and sore joints and muscles. Thanks. Greatly appreciate years of sound advice. Uh, Though my aging brain is struggling a bit with retaining the occasional torrent of biomedical jargon these days. Okay, going to have to tone that down a bit, slow myself down and do more paraphrasing. Thank you for the poke, Carl. All right, folks. So, folks and Carl, joints and muscles. Let's start with uh, the muscles. 
it I always try to have people get a red blood cell magnesium from their doctor and if they are below the the 50th percentile I ask them to take more magnesium. It's really amazing how often that helps your muscles feel better. Uh, the second thing is anti-inflammatories. It's my one-two punch on anti-inflammatories is a decent amount of omega-3 fatty acid, particularly for people with a plant-based diet. I just want to say you have to eat a truckload of flaxseed to get enough EPA and DHA to have the real strong benefits that the omega-3 acids can provide. So I'm very much encouraging, uh, particularly the, the vegans, to maybe... Think about krill as an option. Krill oil does provide uh, very good levels. There's also a single plant, and I'm sorry, I'm not remembering off the top of my head the name. I think it's called ahi oil uh, as its sort of, I don't know what you call it, commercial trade name. And in fact, so go look for ahi oil, but this is from a plant and it's one of the plant-sourced plants. omega-3s that contains actual decent levels of EPA and DHA. So it's a better choice. I'm not, this is not an advertisement. It's just some science. So omega-3s are important. Curcumin, which is in turmeric, but I don't like uh, telling people to take turmeric because they have to take so much. About a teaspoon a day with an eighth of a teaspoon of black pepper in order to absorb it. If you can afford it, it's much better to buy a supplement because you're much more likely in the long run to be compliant. But if you like pepper and you like golden milk, maybe you can get enough turmeric down and throw some pepper on a cracker uh, and, and be fine. It's certainly much cheaper that way. But otherwise, 500 milligrams of a curcumin extract. Uh, there's lots of good ones out there, so you'll find something suitable. And the other thing I always say for joints is glucosamine sulfate. There's actually science showing that glucosamine sulfate at doses of around 1,200 to 1,500 milligrams daily does slow the x-ray progression of arthritis. Now, the way you measure this is you have people stand and you take an x-ray from a fixed distance and then you measure how many millimeters of cartilage they've got, which is to say black space, hold it you know, between the big white things called bones. And if that is shrinking, then the arthritis is progressing. And if it's not shrinking in your treatment group, then you have a benefit relative to placebo. And yes, that's been demonstrated in several studies. All right. We're going to launch into our next uh, story. And this is an update on monkeypox. I attended the public health department's provider meeting clinicians update report on Tuesday morning. That's been going for a couple of years. And I'll admit, I was rolling my eyes a bit when we seemed, when the news media sort of pivoted from COVID to monkeypox. And I, no, not so much. So please hear me out. I want to start with saying that I think the media has really done a great disservice in the way that they've presented it. And that's to say to present this as something that you can't catch unless you're uh, a 
and I like this new term very much, same-sex loving man. Let's go to Germany. This is Berlin. It's July 23rd, 2022, and it's a gay pride day. And this is the first one that's called, they call it Christopher Street Day there. And over half a million people showed up in Berlin to party. Now that is a party. They had, you know, the pandemic and all of that. It was the largest in the city's history. Everyone was euphoric. Everyone was singing, dancing, kissing and hugging. And the floats were rolling up through the last of the floats. Everything was going to begin the evening party. And people started getting push notifications, those of them who were doctors and who were on the on the pipeline anyway, were hearing that the World Health Organization had just declared monkeypox a global health emergency. Now, this is in the wake of a study that was published last, let's see, in June, uh, which analyzed samples of more than 520 infections across 16 countries that occurred from April to June 2022. This was a study that showed they said the virus was spread through sexual activity in 95% of cases. This is where the media messed up. Because the authors said in the paper, there's no clear evidence of sexual transmission through seminal or vaginal fluid. They said transmission is only proven to occur through large respiratory droplets, close or direct contact with skin lesion, and possibly, possibly through contaminated fomites. And fomites are things like, well, towels, sheets, kitchen utensils. Fomites are things that land on those and sit and protect the virus for a while. And they know one more thing in this study. The virus is spread through very close contact between two people. And this can be non-genital contact, cuddling and kissing. Basically, Paul Hunter, a professor of health protection at the Norwich Medical School in the United Kingdom, is quoted in this article as saying, for monkeypox, even just naked cuddling is a big risk. So, first of all, I think we need to take a step back on this and understand that this is not a new disease. Monkeypox has been known about since the 1970s. It has up until now been considered rare. That's probably because out there in West Central Africa, where it's endemic, people don't get tested for it. But it's been a human disease since the 1970s. And what's known about it from Africa is that it does spread with respiratory uh, secretions and that the blisters just like uh, varicella zoster, that is to say shingles, the blisters contain live virus. You can give an infant shingles or a child shingles if you have zoster and they manage to get some of that fluid into their mouth. They'll get chickenpox. And also the fomites of towels and bedding, for sure. Now, are we just noticing this outbreak? Is it because it's now showing up in many countries? Is it something that's going to be shunted to the side because it's only same gender loving people? Basically, right now, as of Tuesday, when they got this data, there are 
31,000 confirmed cases, 11,000, almost 12,000 in the U.S., uh, almost 2,000 in California, seven in Santa Cruz, 516 in San Francisco. And this outbreak has occurred very rapidly. And part of what we are doing now is we're looking at wastewater surveillance as a way of identifying these viral outbreaks. Now, worldwide, this is, I think, a very disproportionate thing. So when you look at the epidemiology, it looks like it's primarily in Canada and the United States and Europe. And European cases, the U.S., by July 25th, so my data, we're now up to, what did I say, 12,000 in the U.S. Well, in, on July 25th, it was under 3,000 in the United States. So making its way around, shall we say. I don't believe these numbers in terms of Europe and the United States. I don't believe the total worldwide cases. I think we're finding it where we have the wherewithal medically to look for it. And I suspect it's become much more widespread because as a doctor... I'm looking at these images. You know, I'm going to misdiagnose this. At least I was until I saw this because I'll go to the I'll go to the uh old website, I'll go to Google it and I'll look up monkeypox images and I'm going to see something very different than these new ones. What we often see, just by the way, we see lesions on the palms and soles of the feet. Now, when you get a rash on the palms and soles of your feet, Although this is not invariable, as a medically trained person, I'm there. I'm like, I go to secondary syphilis. It's like, okay, we got to check this person for syphilis because that's still a thing. And that causes horrible birth defects. You used to have to get tested for syphilis to get married in the United States because we were trying to prevent the horrible birth defects. And we figured if we checked all the people who got married, we'd probably stop most of the secondary syphilis because the thing goes dormant, lives in your body for the next 50 years. 50 years, and eventually destroys your brain. In the meantime, any babies you have, well, too bad. And so testing is important when we talk about syphilis. For monkeypox, you can get a rash on the palms and the soles. So if you develop any kind of rash and you have risk factors, (laughs) I'll, I'll tell you another one, okay? We've got men who have sex with men, men who have sex with multiple people. Uh, any individual of any sex who is meeting their sexual partners through an online app has an increased risk. Uh, So, you know, Tinder beware, I guess. Probably shouldn't name a specific app. I don't want to be talking to lawyers, but yeah, First Amendment and all of that. Anyway, it can look a little bit like hot tub folliculitis, like a series of little pimples on the back. One of the clues here is because it's related to the molluscum contagiosum, that's a virus that little kids get, and they get these little bumps, and the bumps have a central pit. It's called an umbilication. These are often umbilicated as well, so that's something to be looking for. So rash on the palms of the hand, little dot in the middle of the rash, another clue. But don't expect it to necessarily look like the way it looks in Africa. This virus has mutated, and as we know, viruses mutate quite rapidly, and this one seems maybe it's just because it's going to a bunch of different environments quickly. Maybe it's because it's moving through populations of different ethnic groups, and that's favoring certain variations. Hard to say. 
but we seem to be seeing more rapid viral mutation than we have observed before, but I'm not really sure if it's really true. What do you do about this? Well, that's the thing. You see, we have an FDA-approved vaccine for this stuff. That vaccine was actually developed as part of the bioterrorism funding, right? That because smallpox and monkeypox both respond to the same vaccine and to the same drugs. So we've got something in the box for this one. We've got a vaccine that is FDA approved, and it's called Geneos. J-Y-N-N-E-O-S. It is available, I might add, in our community. It's already been distributed. And if you are in a high-risk group, and you can certainly go look that up on the CDC web t- website, but multiple partners, men who have sex with men, uh, any kind of public venue sex or private sex party, big risk factor, for obvious reasons. Uh, locally, just about all of the institutions have it, Doctors on Duty, PAMF, Kaiser, Salud para la Gente, Dignity. So you can actually get this vaccine if you are at risk. And you, if you have HIV, you definitely should get this vaccine because those are the people who are actually getting very sick. Anyone with an immunocompromised condition who is at risk uh, due to their behavior should definitely think about doing it. Uh, we're thinking about uh, we're thinking about who is going to benefit from vaccination. And it's essentially any of the people who use the pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV, that's the group we're trying to reach. Sex workers of either sex are probably also going to need to be in the mix. The new drug, as I said, is Ticoviramat, and it's being called T-pox, um, T-P-O-X-X, and it also has a, a laboratory designation, but I think T-pox is catchy enough that that's what we're going to call it. Uh, it was developed back in um, 2018 for smallpox. It was, again, part of that, let's have some drugs in the uh in the reserves in case somebody decides to weaponize smallpox, something that I have been terrified uh, from since I first learned about this. And it's inve- it's approved for smallpox, right? So FDA approved. It is investigational for monkeypox. But, you know, if I got it, we have it in the strategic national stockpile. It is currently available to anyone who looks like they've got it. And at the moment, you can get it without having lab confirmation. All you need is attestation by the physician, and it's available in the ERs. There's, of course, a form that the institution has to uh, fill out because, hey, it's the government, right? But you can do it. This one is not going to travel wide and travel far, I don't think, in this country, Uh, We've gotten our public health apparatus beefed up and I think reorganized like it's never been organized before. And we've also got at the moment a real strong commitment on the part of our government not to let epidemics get out of hand. And if you're going to make a mistake, let's prosecute the innocent rather than wait for proof of guilt. And I think there is, you know, this is in general a benign self-limited illness. It does have a tendency in Africa to kill children, which would be, I think, 
a vulnerable group that we could mostly agree, even in rare events, uh, and low risk should be protected. And I just want to make sure that people understand this, and I think probably that's plenty of discussion on monkeypox. Let me go to an email now, and this one from Maureen in Santa Cruz County. Uh, Maureen asks, direct contracting entity, DCE. Dear Dr. Don, appreciated your podcast comments about Medicare Advantage plans. On your podcast, could you please comment about the Direct Contracting Entity Program? This is a program that has seen increasing rollout for folks on regular Medicare. Thank you. Okay. Well, Maureen, this was a really good question. It had me actually going to the internet because I needed a review of exactly what direct contracting was going to be. I found this lovely page from the CMS. That's the, those are the people who control Medicare. It's uh, dated April 22nd, 2019, and it says, Innovation Models. Direct contracting is a set of voluntary payment model options aimed at reducing expenditures and preserving or enhancing quality of care for beneficiaries and Medicare fee-for-service. Okay, this is written in high bureaucraties. Um, I'm going to read you two more lines. Direct contracting creates three payment model options for participants to take on risk and earn rewards and provides them with choices related to cash flow, beneficiary alignment, and benefit enhancements. The payment model options are anticipated to appeal to a broad range of physician practices and other organizations because they are expected to reduce burden, support a focus on beneficiaries with complex chronic conditions, and encourage participation from organizations that have not typically participated in Medicare fee-for-service or CMS Innovation Center models. So that is direct contracting. The equity contracting program is the flavor of the month on this. That first one was written in uh, 2019. It hasn't really gotten a whole lot of... uh, buy-in, and so they're trying to get more buy-in. So starting January 1st, a new model exists, and this is the equity model. Uh, It will require participants to meet provisions promoting health equity, including the creation of a health equity plan, multi-page document to be filed with the government. The model will introduce a health equity benchmark adjustment to payments to help support entities on care delivery and coordination in underserved areas. For this read, having to measure stuff that you aren't currently measuring in order to qualify for payment. Model participants will have to report data on the democratic and social needs of their beneficiaries and enhance the range of services offered to improve access to care. Well, that would be great, but the problem is... Outreach is expensive and difficult, and reporting on demographic data that you haven't already collected in your chart, because now the government wants you to do that, is going to be expensive and front-loaded and have nothing to do with actually benefited this. So basically what this is, from my perspective, if I were still in fee-for-service Medicare care, I would look at that and I would go, hmm, you know what, Uh, this is going to take a lot of money to put together in order to get a little bit of money. Uh, There's also in there something good. They're going to actually 
increase the amount of provider-led governance for the moment. Direct contracting providers only have to have 25% of the uh, board be doctors, which means 75% of the people, a clear majority on any board, are going to be able to outvote the actual people who have any familiarity with doing medical care. So that's nice. They'll also have to have separate beneficiary and consumer advocate representatives on their board. Uh, That's supposed to improve things somehow. I mainly don't like this because Elizabeth Warren doesn't like it. And of all of the people out there representing us, she cares about people. That She's made that abundantly clear. I totally believe that she gives a crap about the average person. And that includes what they pay in taxes and what the credit card companies can do to them. And as a consumer of health care, what these companies who write these ads and hire famous people like Joe Namath to advertise them, uh, have wonderful a certain plan is, you know, people are suckers for that kind of thing. She says that the model would help privatize traditional Medicare, which it would, and turn the program over to corporate profiteers, which it very well might. Critics have claimed that the direct contracting would employ similar tactics, such as let's work with the providers to add unnecessary diagnosis. This person's a little diabetic. If they're a little diabetic, or maybe they're not quite diabetic, but if you make them diabetic, you're going to get twice the money for taking care of them. So you're going to inflate their risk score. You're going to try, or your bosses are going to tell you, yeah, you know, if it's a gray area, go to the white there, and let's go to the light, let's go to the white, let's make them a little sicker, Let's their blood pressure is high half the time, well, that's hypertension. And if you've got a hypertensive diabetic, you get a lot more money in these plans because you get a lump sum. So it's sort of a capitated, but it's capitated lump sum per year for that person based on how sick they are with the idea that if they're sicker, you're going to see them more often and provide better care. And of course, spend some of the money that you get documenting the better care that you're providing and also documenting other stuff that's that people in Washington have decided that you need to document because they want to study it or they want to have the demographics on it. Uh, but it's extra work. And it doesn't, and the time you and money you spend doing that doesn't go to healthcare. Also, under this model, providers are able to pocket any profits, creating an incentive to lower the quality of medical care. That's what we call a perverse incentive. Right now, doctors have the incentive to order more medical care, uh, send you off to the specialist in those gray area cases. Doesn't cost them anything. Under this, it would. In those gray area cases, not send you off for the consultation or not send you off for the CT or MRI. Now, it's a difficult thing to manage doing care appropriately and not making a self-interested decision, making the call based on the interest of the patient. And like I said, in those gray zone cases, if you're going to lose money by doing something, it's going to lower the probability that you're going to do it, even if it may be the right thing. And certainly in in areas where you can justify it to yourself, they don't do that in England, so I'm not going to, I don't really have to do it, right? Well, yeah, that's true to a point. So no, I don't like these. I don't like the way they keep monkeying around with Medicare. Medicare has its problems. I think if we, I think Medicare needs oversight and 
uh, protocols. I, I, much as I hate protocols, I think we need to do that before we generalize the Medicare model to universal health care. I think we should be looking at hybrid models like what they have in Germany. I think it's a much better system to just, you know, keep for us because of all the infrastructure that we've got in healthcare. We should simply limit how much can be spent on administration and put guardrails on the service. We have an excellent program called Choosing Well that's funded by the National Institute of Health that looks at the medical data and makes, you know, basically guidelines about what is worthwhile doing for patients, what's probably not worthwhile, what's effective, what's probably not effective, what's necessary, what's probably not necessary. So the Choose Wisely campaign could be the sort of primer for what we construct if we ever got, God, you know, let me pray, let me pray that we have a large number of people who actually give a damn about more than just getting reelected at some point in the future, because that's what we need to rebuild our healthcare system. And don't hold your breath, I'm afraid. Let's go to our next story. We have enough time for some good advice. Don't want to leave you with a rant. We're going to talk about good sleep hygiene. First of all, let's talk about infectious diseases. We've already done that a little bit this show. Did you know that sleep plays a powerful role in supporting a healthy immune system? In fact, the two things are really closely connected. A lack of sleep can increase the likelihood of infection. And of course, if you do get the infection, illness can disrupt your sleep further, which in turn slows down your recovery time and sets you up for another infection. So consistent sleep is really important to help your body fight off unexpected illness. Sleep is your body's real first line of defense against infectious disease. During sleep, your body produces proteins called cytokines that fight inflammation and infection. And when you're exposed to an infection agent or have inflammation, your body increases the production of these to help offset illness. It also does that when you're under chronic stress. So chronic stress actually, for a brief period of time, actually improves your production of cytokine. Over time, that tends to fall out and drop. But sleep deprivation hinders this and has been shown to increase your risk of catching a cold, for example. Also, as we said, irregular sleep patterns could be a sign that you're beginning to fight off an illness. So if you are beginning to feel sick, basically if you feel really tired when you normally don't, you should probably go to bed. And in my case, I always tell people, take a hot bath, then go to bed because viruses don't like body heat and replicate. So increasing your core temperature, even for a short period of time, slows down viral replication. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, about one-third of Americans don't get enough sleep. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about some various strategies to get more sleep, and I'm going to let you know that I do have a handout that I give out to patients. It's a sleep hygiene recommendation handout, and I'm happy to make that available to anyone who sends me an email, and we'll just send it back to you. Uh, and I'll be going over those in a moment, but I want to add a couple of things. Uh, first of all is uh, when you exercise, be sure that you finish exercising at least four hours before you're 
wanting to fall asleep. You need to give yourself plenty of time to unwind, let your adrenaline wash out of your system before you go to bed, or it can increase your sleep latency, the time it takes to fall asleep. If you're having trouble sleeping, you can take naps. You shouldn't go more than 30 minutes, and you should do it early to mid-afternoon. You shouldn't do it any later than, say, 3 p.m., because that could interfere with your ability to fall asleep and start you off on a vicious cycle. Duh, you don't want to have caffeine, a real heavy meal, um, or alcohol just before going to bed. It, it may help you fall asleep, but the problem with alcohol is you'll wake up more frequently during the night, especially if you're a postmenopausal woman. You probably want to avoid that. Now, you can make your bedroom more or less conducive to sleep. So the first thing you want to do is get it dark. That means taking some duct tape and covering up all those little blue button, those little blue lights on all of the electronics in the room. You don't need to see that. You can figure out if the electronics are on, and that's enough light to actually suppress melatonin release. You also want to keep the bedroom cool, probably no greater than 67 degrees. Now, if you're very old and you can't sleep at that temperature, that's one thing. Okay, go ahead get yourself comfortable. But for most of us who are insomniac, we're going to do better in a cool room, if at all possible. Uh, You want to reduce, you want to change your sheets and pillowcases frequently. That keeps the dust mites down and lowers your allergens. You want to actually use aromatherapy, since like lavender, jasmine, and sandalwood actually promote relaxation. There's good science on this, okay? It isn't a bad idea, and I know this sounds paradoxical. I said keep the room cool, but if you take a warm shower or a bath 30 minutes before bed, it will tend to make you sleepy. Part of that's because your body, if you're, especially with a bath, is going to lower your core temperature to compensate for the increased external heat. That means that when you get out of the bathtub, your body temperature will drop, your blood heat will drop, and that helps with sleep as well. Another thing that you can do, of course, is don't eat a big meal before bedtime. I think I've always mentioned this. I want to talk to those menopausal women, postmenopausal women. Alcohol is a great trigger for the nighttime heat. So nighttime heat and racing heartbeat at 3 a.m., stop drinking. It takes a week for some people for it to go away, so you might just... If you're having real sleep in sleep difficulties, you might just go on the wagon for a while. Men can get this effect too. They tend to get it older. The key things that I recommend are always wake up at the same time, even on the weekends. Sleeping late really screws with your body clock and really limit light at night. Um, I like people to use amber glasses, put them on at about four hours before they're going to go to sleep works very well. We are all watching TV and looking at our screens and texting and etc. or tablets or whatever. And that blue light suppresses melatonin release. If you get up in the middle of the night, be sure you use a red light. Don't turn on an LED light on your bedside table. That will mess up your melatonin. If you have a little red light or a red flashlight, you can even just get red cellophane and put it on the end of a regular flashlight. But get that light, get that light red. You can still find your way to the bathroom. You can still see the toilet, but it makes a huge difference because you don't wipe out your melatonin release. 
you can take melatonin and that can help maybe three to five milligrams. That could be a high dose. Some people get by, some people need a low dose to work. And I've never really understood that, but I just have people play around. Uh, and if three milligrams doesn't work, try 1.5. And if that doesn't work, try five. And if that doesn't work, try something else. And I've got another suggestion in a little while on the something else. Another thing you can do if you're waking up with monkey mind uh, is set aside 20 minutes before you get ready for bed. Call it worry time. During this time, you're going to create a to-do list to tomorrow. You're going to think about problems that have issues that came up during the day. Uh, You can write things down. But think about stuff now so that when when you do wake up, you aren't going to start worrying because that's when it happens. That's when it gets you. And once you let that monkey mind run around, it's going to be hard to fall back to sleep. Keep a pad of paper uh, next to the bed. And if you do wake up and start working over an issue in your mind, write it down and put down the pen. It somehow turns the brain off. It just, it's like, okay, I will, I will look at that pad in the morning right now. It's time for sleep. Morning light is really your friend. So we're talking about no blue light at night. We're talking about lots of blue light in the morning. You need to try for about 10,000 lux uh, for 15 minutes. This sets a clock that'll release melatonin, uh, the sleep hormone, about 16 hours later. It'll also turn off orexin, which is the stay awake hormone. So you've got a go to sleep hormone and a stay awake hormone. There's cell phones like uh, the Luxmeter. Luxmeter will work for you. You can basically download the app and that's L-U-X meter. It's an app. It's one of those free ones. But you point your camera out the window and it'll tell you how many lux are coming through that uh, window. So even in the winter, you need to try for that 10,000 lux. It makes a big difference. Sleep is what I call one leg of the tripod, right? And the tripod is sleep, exercise, and nutrition. And if you want to be healthy, you need to make sure that all three of those legs are working or you're going to fall off your stool. A new study, sort of related in the last few minutes we have left, uh, that different people react to uh, sleep. Heavy drinkers that have insomnia and have trouble falling asleep or staying asleep are actually less likely to suffer from alcohol-induced blackouts when they do drink. So that's kind of interesting. Um, I think there could be a lot of reasons for this. This looks like something done by a psychology department by somebody who wants to get a paper out. But nevertheless, if you're having trouble sleeping, looking at your alcohol really is key. That nightcap concept, completely off, completely bogus. I am a real fan of an herb called valerian. And I'm going to take a moment or two that we have left and just share with you a couple of papers. Valerian, of course, is an herb. That means it has a ton of things in it, including, by the way, free amino acid GABA, which is something some of us take as a pill. It also has uh, a, a lot of biological effects, but it reduces sleep latency. So doses of this are about 400 milligrams to 700 milligrams has been studied. More than that, 900 milligrams tends to make people tired in the morning. But if you get at that sweet spot, the 400 milligram aqueous water extract, uh, 
what you find would be uh, improved sleep latency. You fall asleep earlier, improved sleep quality. You don't wake up as much. And it doesn't have any effect on drowsiness in the morning, dream or dream recall. And although you, you may wake up, you will fall right back to sleep. Interestingly, it doesn't work in people who are good sleepers. They don't, they don't get better. And there's a couple of studies looking at improving uh, slow-wave sleep, which is the, the sleep where you detoxify and you're, you have the uh, phagocytosis that goes on that gets rid of all the crap in your brain. So good slow-wave sleep has been associated with improved cognitive functioning in mild cognitive deficit patients. Definitely something as we age that we're all really wanting to get. Another study compared uh, using oxazepam, which is a Valium-like drug with uh, a 600 milligram dose of valerian. They both had equal effectiveness. So it works as well as Valium, but the side effect uh, rate is much lower. The data on valerian for sleep is excellent. The data on it for anxiety, not so much. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Bansky. Music by John Scoville.